Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the UK is opening the door to Huawei and its 5G network. Is that a risk to the alliance? And the EU and the UK have officially divorced. What now? And a new law in BC aiming to crack down on questionable casino transactions and money laundering has those in Ontario concerned. We tell you why. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Phil Gursky is with us, President and CEO, Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, and is with us now. Phil, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. So your thoughts on the UK letting, uh, just opening the door, I guess, a little bit to, uh, to China and Huawei. Well, I, I can't say I'm surprised. We were getting hints of this going back a few months, but I, I do want to stress from the outset, Scott, I'm, I'm not a technical guru. I'm just a former intelligence guy, so I understand intelligence, but not necessarily the technology behind it. Um, a little surprised in that, you know, the United, United States under Trump has been very vociferous. They will not allow it. The Australians have said the same thing. We in Canada are typical sitting on the fence until we decide what to do. So I'm a little surprised that the Brits came out and said they were going to allow it in. Now, Boris Johnson did say it's on the periphery. We're going to be very careful about security. But it does seem to break ranks with what we call the Five Eyes intelligence community. So the Five Eyes is a post-World War II alliance. It's the, it's the gold standard of intelligence sharing. It's, it's you know Australia, Canada, the UK, New Zealand, United States. So for one partner to kind of say, we're not in, it's a little bit surprising to me because I, I can't recall in my, in, my, in my history working in, in intelligence in Canada where we had that kind of, uh, you know, we're all for one and one for all. And it doesn't seem to be that way right now. Uh, I, you hear uh, Huawei and executives there saying there is absolutely no proof that we have uh, ever compromised any security, any of that sort of thing, which to me sounds like, um, you know, uh, an around the bush answer uh, to the question. I, I mean, because I don't think that's really the concern. The concern is they have the right to do that anytime they choose. The fact that they haven't done it already that's a moot point, is it not? I, I agree with you on that. And we have to understand, you know, Huawei is a Chinese firm. And by definition, you know, China is not our friend. I hope that people realize that by now, which means the Chinese government has incredible leverage on the companies that are Chinese in nature, which, what is, how does that, what does that translate into? What that translates into is that if push came to shove and the Chinese said to Huawei, thou shalt do this, they're going to do it. It's not as if it's like a, you know, an independent Canadian or American firm that can go tell the government, you know, where to shove it. Everything is Chinese. Everything is Chinese government. So I agree with you that saying we haven't done it so far is kind of irrelevant because the possibility is that it can happen. Now, now is it probable? I don't know. But the fact is it is possible. And the bottom line is, do we want to entrust a very important part of our, 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 our technology sector to a foreign firm that can use it against our interests if need be? I think the answer is no. The Brits have said it's okay. The Americans have said no. And we're in, like I said, we're here in Canada. It's somewhere between in between. Well, again, when, when executives from Huawei give us that answer, you know, the first thing that comes to my mind is the two Michaels. Well, there was a time when they wouldn't do that either, and now they have. And uh, let me ask you this question, which is totally hypothetical. Let's just say we were all in uh, knee-deep in 5G right now, and Huawei was involved, and all of a sudden we get caught in the middle of an extradition case. Yeah, and you've made a really good point. I mean, are we to trust a partner who says that they're transparent, 
that they would never do this when they turn around and kidnap two Canadians completely in a, in a, in a, in a, inappropriately. There's no, no reason why they had to do this except to put pressure on us to release the CFO in Vancouver. So they're asking us to trust them and they do this to us? I mean, why would we? I mean, it, it, it just it, bog- it boggles the imagination, Scott, as to why would we go down this pathway when they're not a country that, that are of their word. So when they make these promises, they're empty promises. I don't understand why the Brits are seeing this as, as something acceptable. Now, as I said, they claim they can sort of, you know, monitor this so that they're kept on the outside and there's nothing sensitive to be compromised. But my question is, why even go down that road in the first place? There are other providers out there that can do 5G, is my understanding. Why go with one that is basically owned by a state that is clearly not our friend? That was my next question. Why Boris Johnson would even go uh, down this route? Do you think this has something to do with exiting the European Union? It's something to do with Brexit. They're trying to blaze a new trail, make new partnerships here. I doubt it because I would think that the Five Eyes relationship, which is an intelligence sharing and defense relationship they have, like I said, since the end of the Second World War, is much more important than the EU. Certainly, as my understanding, having dealt with the Brits on many occasions and in a variety of intelligence roles through my career, I think they see the Five Eyes as as the most important set of relationships that they have. My guess is that what happened is that, you know, to date, Huawei is already kind of in the system. They're providing all kinds of stuff. And maybe the the calculus was made, Scott, that if we ban them now, that means you have to rip all this stuff out, which is going to cost a lot of money and delay the advent of 5G. I, I, so I, th- I kind of think that's where the decision stems from. Again, I'm not a technical expert, but what I have read is that they're kind of already there anyway, so this is the easiest decision to make rather than to you know blow the whole thing up and start from square one again. I think that's part of what's driving this is more economics than, than any kind of like, you know, stick it to the EU, which is, well, they're doing that anyway, right. but I don't think that's driving the decision, no. Uh, you bring up a, ver- a valid point and another question I had. Are we too far into all of this to pull out now? You think about how interwoven we are with the Chinese economy. Uh, China, China is spending millions here in Canadian universities. Uh, they've sort of already kind of infiltrated and worked their way into the system at this point. Um, is Boris Johnson saying it's too late to turn back now? Well, you, you know, you're absolutely right. And, you know, when I was working at CSIS, we warned the Canadian government, Canadian people, 15 years ago, these, this was a bad idea to allow China to have this kind of influence on our university campuses with the Confucius Institute. I mean, you know, McMaster's had this issue with, with, with China influence as well. So we've been, we've been blaring this horn for a very long time, and people ignored us, saying, oh, you're just a bunch of spooks, and, you, you know, you're, you're paranoid about everything. Turns out we were actually right about most things, at least, at least on this occasion. And, and maybe the, the, the calculation is that, yeah, we have invested a lot. Um, they've got their tentacles into all, all aspects of our society, not just technology, but investments. And if you look at it from a global perspective, Scott, they're everywhere. They're building dams and roads and plants and ports and all kinds of things. And they're doing so such that, or so that the countries that receive their, their services and benefits can't pull out either because they can't afford to, or because they've gone too far down the road of receiving these, these services and, and facilities. So I think it's our own fault. I think it's our own fault for somehow believing that, you know, China is, was an ally. It never was. And uh, we've kind of drunk the Kool-Aid. And once you've drunk the Kool-Aid, it's pretty hard to get rid of it, I suppose. Uh, many have said that Canadians are too cozy uh, with the Chinese uh, for those reasons that you are just uh, uh, uh mentioning. So can we expect the same sort of reaction from the Prime Minister that we, uh, we've we seen with Boris Johnson? Well, if you could predict Justin Trudeau and the Canadian government 
decision making. Scott, you'd be a very rich man. Um, I, I'd be very surprised if my former friends at CSIS and, and CSE, where I also, also used to work, are not advising the government very strongly not to do this. But will they take their advice? I learned a long time ago that in Canada, we don't have a really good intelligence culture in this country where intelligence is, is, is consumed and used um, for the purposes it's created, i.e. to advise and, and to provide information that's useful in decision making. I don't know. I, I really don't know. I mean, the government's kind of in a, in, a, in a hard position in that, you know, a very important ally in Donald Trump in the United States has said no. A very important ally in the UK has said yes. I know, and you're hearing threats from Donald Trump about, you know, what does this mean for the UK-US relationship? What does yeah. it mean for intelligence sharing? Yeah. What does it mean for defense collaboration? What does it mean for all kinds of things? And we know we have a president that's very mercurial. He can change his mind 14 times a day. So if we accepted you know, Huawei 5G in Canada, what would that mean for our relationship with the Americans? I mean, that's our most important relationship, right? Economically, politically, et cetera, et cetera. So I hope the government's thinking very, very carefully about this. And, and, you know, going down, like, what are the implications? And lots of times people make decisions without thinking about the day after or the week after. And I'm really hoping that, you know, we, the, the adults in the room are asking themselves those questions and saying, what is the best decision for Canada, taking into consideration all the things we've talked about? How do you think this is playing in the UK? Are anybody, is anybody questioning the Prime Minister's move there, do you think? I would think so. But again, you know, I, I, I did read some analysis um, from people within the UK intelligence community saying, yeah, we, we've kind of looked at this stuff and we think it's okay. So, I don't, you know, this is a really tough call, Scott. You've got people within the same intelligence alliance that use basically the same, because information is shared fairly freely in the Five Eyes community. So what is it the Americans are seeing that the Brits aren't or vice versa? In other words, what is it that UK intelligence has looked at what they have and said, we can do this and secure our systems and, and not go down a pathway where we're going to be in trouble? Whereas the Americans said you can't. So that's the question that I have. Is it really about intelligence sharing and, and, and secret information, or is it about politics and economics? You know, is it about we don't want Huawei because we want to favor firms that are more friendly to us or, or, or firms that are more Western, if I can use that term. So it, it's really hard to figure out exactly what drove the decision in both countries. I'm guessing it's a combination of all the above. But I do find it, as I said at the outset, I do find it surprising that Two countries that are the cornerstones of a brilliant gold standard intelligence sharing alliance have, have reached very different decisions. And I'd love to be a fly on the wall in my in my old job to figure out what drove that because I this is unprecedented in my in in, in my time in intelligence. And I'd really love to find out how we got where we are today. Does it reduce the credibility of the UK? It might, um, but I, and I'll throw this out again. The problem is, is that under the current president, um, a lot of people have been questioning the decisions that his administration has made. He himself has yeah. dismissed his own intelligence services on many occasions for basically telling him things he did not want to hear. So I think there's lots of questions being raised about the U.S. administration's use of intelligence. And they said, so in other words, the U.S. can't yeah. say, you know, you can't point a figure at the U.K. because we're kind of making decisions here that people don't understand. So I don't know. I mean, on the other hand, a lot of Donald Trump's threats are pretty pretty empty, right? He makes them one day and then takes them back the next day. I can't see the alliance foundering on this kind of thing. Other other possibilities, economics, who knows? But I think the alliance is here to stay. It's been shaken, but I think it's still pretty solid. Uh, do you think Donald Trump and his divisive nature is making it okay to just do your own thing now? Maybe, maybe these old alliances aren't what they used to be. 
I sincerely hope not. Yeah. Like I said, that's fri- I, I, it's frightening. Well, it is because I, again, I worked in intelligence for for more than three decades, and and you know we had an other sharing relationships with other countries outside of the Five Eyes. But boy, if if we were to abolish or downgrade or undermine the Five Eyes Alliance, we'd be in big trouble here in Canada because we get a lot more intelligence than we actually create ourselves. And we can't turn, like, you know, to the Estonians and the Fijians to replace what the Americans and the Brits give us. So I'm hoping that, again, the adults in the room are going to, you know, understand this thing and, and come up with a good decision because the, 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 yeah, the, the absence of the Five Eyes intelligence sharing relationship that we benefit from tremendously would be a big blow to Canada and our understanding of what's happening in the world. And I hope I don't live to see that day. Phil, I can't let you go without asking you uh, your comments on the coronavirus issue and as far as security and such. Uh, do you have an opinion? I, a little bit. I mean, honestly, I'm following the news around the world here in Canada, Scott. But from what I get, you know, it's a lot of, a lot of panic. And, and I think the one thing I will say, and this is, I'm not, this is not an original thought, but, you know, people are turning to social media for information on the coronavirus. And guess what? Social media is not always correct. Yeah. So I, I just I, I advise people. Before you, you, know, you read your aunt, you know, aunt Betty's tweet about the fact that your neighbor has corona, yeah. go to the proper sites, go to the proper authorities, because the fear-mongering is out there, the misinformation is out there, and we don't need more panic on this thing. It's bad enough as it is without the panic taking over. Uh, does this present any sort of security issue? I don't know about that. I mean, it does in the sense that we always don't want people coming in and spreading the virus here in Canada, but, uh, you know, that's not really a... It's more of a health security issue. I mean, it wouldn't be something that intelligence services would yeah. have to get involved yeah. in. So there's probably screening of passengers in terms of, you know, where have you been? Uh, have you been in contact with people? I mean, pick up the virus. So I think from that perspective, it's a security issue. Um, but again, I would just, I mean, let's just, just stay calm here. Mm-hmm. This is not some kind of Hollywood film where we're going to have a you know, pandemic worldwide that's going to kill bazillions of people. So let authorities do what they do and get your information from people that know what they're talking about. And as well, uh, we should also pass along, we were talking about this earlier in the week, uh, Government of Ontario and the Canadian government uh, as well all have websites on this with accurate information and exactly. all sorts of... And a little, uh, little more accurate than Twitter and Facebook. <laughs> I would suggest <laughs> so. Uh, Phil Gursky, President and CEO, Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting and form for, uh, former CSIS uh, employee. Phil, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Always a pleasure, Scott. Have a good one. You too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, the EU, the European Union, expected to have a big vote today on Brexit, uh, meaning finally this deal after three and a half years after the referendum will finally see the United Kingdom out of the EU. However, uh, still a lot of work to be done. Uh, Here's a clip from the Irish Prime Minister. I think if you see this as a contest, uh, the European Union is in a very strong position. Uh, we're 27 countries, we have a population of 450 million people, and the single market is the largest economy in the world. But I don't think we have to see it as a contest. Uh, there is a possibility for us to work together with the United Kingdom over the next few months. All right, to talk more about all of this, Dr. Andrew Glencross is with us, Senior Lecturer, Department of Politics and International Rela- uh, Relations, Aston University in Birmingham, author of Why the UK Voted for Brexit, uh, David Cameron's Great Miscalculation. Uh, Dr. Andrew Glencross is with us now. Andrew, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me, Scott. By the way, since I've read the title of your book, how do you think David Cameron is feeling these days? Is he around? Does he make many appearances? He's lying low, really, because it is difficult for him to 
stick his head above the parapet and take what comes in his way because he's become very much a figure of of hate and animosity by people who who rightly say that he thought he would have an easy win in this referendum in 2016 and things turned out spectacularly wrong. He did miscalculate. So that being, uh, with the UK being so divided, do half of the, does half the population think he's a good guy, the other half think he's a bad guy, or all of them just for, for, for rustling up this mess? It's actually from both sides, really, because there's a lot of blame that can be attributed to him for not doing enough to try and get positive momentum in favour of the EU, which is, after all, what he wanted people to vote for in 2016. But also, he made no planning for, he made no contingencies for the possibility that people would vote to leave. And seeing as he'd been the one saying for a long time that there were lots of bad things about the EU, that was seen as very inconsistent and inconsequential. And therefore, it's from both sides, really. And he, he doesn't have many places really where he's welcome anymore. Hmm. All right. So bring us up to date on where we are now. It seems it's taken forever to get to this point. Uh, for the, those of us on this side of the water, w- talk about the process and what's happening now. So it really has been quite a saga. And we're approaching what can be best described as the end of Act One. It sounds like this has gone on forever, but it's only really just Act One where you have the formal end of the UK status as a member of the European Union. From the end of the 31st of this month, the UK will not be a member of this club. But then the whole question is, Act 2, you have the possibility until the end of this year to actually stick with all the EU's rules. The rules of membership will still apply. And then Act 3, after the end of that, what's our relationship going to be? We don't know. That's up in the air. So there's still at least two more acts to go here. Uh, what is the mood in the UK this week? Because, again, uh, after, I think it's 47 years, this relationship finally comes to an end. Is this resonating with those in the UK? It certainly is resonating with people who feel very strongly about it, whether they feel strongly about wanting to leave or sad about not wanting to leave. But beyond that, I think there's just a lot of resignation and misunderstanding as to why it's taken so long, why it became so complicated and possibly as well a desire not to really think too hard about what's coming next because, as you just heard from your clip from the Irish Prime Minister, it's the really hard negotiations that are going to follow now. And after all this time, just to get to that stage, what's coming next is not something that the public really wants to really engage with too much. Hmm, Especially after everything that they've been through. Is there any sense of relief at this point? Well, I tell you what I think was a relief. That was the whole Harry and Meghan saga, which actually came (laughs) to dominate the airwaves instead of Brexit. But now we're going to have another round, Act 2, as I say, about are we going to actually extend the transition arrangements? What are we going to do about trying to make a free trade deal? Can we do a deal on the side with the United States of America? So all these questions that revolve around what are we going to actually have when it comes to negotiating with the EU, they're going to stay there, gone. Uh, so uh, is the UK anticipating that what they have to go through, what they're about to go through, as you said, in the third act of all of this and coming up with a new deal, a new trade deal of some sort, will that be as agonizing as it's been so far, just even getting to this point? 
I think Boris Johnson hopes that it won't be and that it will be buried, as he says, not in the front pages, but in the business pages, because we're talking about complex details. We're talking about things that have an impact on certain sectors of the economy to a large extent, but much less felt on an aggregate level. And so therefore, he's hoping that you can change the narrative by focusing more on what the government is doing at home with health, with education, with those kind of measures, and then you bury the Brexit-related drama about Act 3 to some of the business pages, as I say. Um, Can you keep it off the front page if this affects those in the UK? I mean, is he suggesting at this point that there's nothing more to see here, Uh, we're working out a deal, everybody go about their daily business, or will this start affecting the lives of those that live there? Well, it already has affected us to the degree that our economy hasn't grown as fast as predictions would um, would tell us if we stayed in the EU. But that's hard to actually notice on a day-to-day basis. And so the hope is with the transition arrangements until the end of the year and with the possibility of having some kind of access to the single market, the pain is diffused. It's not really anything that is so concentrated that people feel in their everyday life. And certainly you want to avoid the bit shock that happened to Sterling, the UK currency that happened just after the referendum, because that was felt. That was felt when it fell on the international markets. And there were lots of economic immediate obvious consequences. And so his hope is it's not so obvious. We can have some stories about how we're trying to do some other things as a government. We're trying to be more unified by trying to get our policies in education and health, and therefore all of that takes the actual negotiating aspects of the future deal off the real agenda, politically speaking. Uh, in the last, uh, uh, in the 11th hour of trying to do these deals, it seemed that uh, that uh, Ireland and the Irish backstop was a big issue uh, in all of this. How has that been resolved? Is it resolved? Well, it's resolved to the degree that the agreement that just needs now the European Parliament to accept, to vote off on, actually creates a new, in a sense, legal status for Northern Ireland and a legal status that will protect it and keep it closely aligned with the EU. But the problem is that's settled. However, Boris Johnson says and interprets it very differently to what the EU says will actually happen under that arrangement. So there's also a lot of room there for misunderstanding and for that to actually come back and bite him somewhere painful, because the reality is probably that it's going to be much more in line with what the EU says it will look like, rather than how Boris Johnson has said, nothing much will change. In fact, everything will pretty much be the same when it comes to flows of goods between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. And that's less likely to be the case. Uh, So will we see some sort of border there? Will we see some sort of, uh, uh, well, backstop? We're definitely going to see different arrangements for Northern Ireland that will involve then processes to check the flow of goods and especially things that involve plant life or animals when it comes to those things moving between Northern Ireland across the Irish Sea to the rest of the UK. Because the EU doesn't want Northern Ireland, which has this open land border then, with an EU country, Ireland, yeah. it doesn't want that to become the backdoor for all sorts of things that shouldn't be entering the EU market space. So over the next year, what will this transition period be like? Uh, is it old rules apply until new rules are in place? Uh, how does the transition work? 
So it's exactly that. Old rules and potentially some new rules and all the time without the UK actually having a say in all of this. There's the possibility to be in the room and listen to the discussions if the EU comes up with new rules, but there's no way of challenging those. There's no way of having a vote on those rules as the UK used to have as a member state in the past. So it's really about, in a sense, having to apply rules, being a rule taker rather than a rule maker until the end of this year, at least. Do you anticipate, could there be something that throws this off the rails? How, what does the future look like? Is it, although it will be rough waters for the most part, will, it, uh, will, will we get to the destination here? Or do you see something else derailing this before then? Well, with Boris Johnson's strong majority in Parliament, he's got an 80-seat majority and with a very weak opposition, as long as those, in a sense, internal that internal power base stays the same, then Boris Johnson, I think, with his even overly optimistic take on a lot of things, can probably actually ride out a lot of the the negative aspects to do with the economy, to do with perhaps conceding some new ground to the EU, and he can ride that out pretty much unhindered. Up until it comes to really the crunch, though, whereby if he says, look, we need to have a deal with the EU that might actually prevent us from having a deal, for instance, with the U.S. when it comes to importing U.S. agricultural products, then, of course, that will be in the front page of the news. So he can't eventually have his cake and eat it all the time. But up to a point, he'll be sitting pretty. Uh, When this all first started, there was thought that others may want to break away from the EU. What is that? What is that? uh, What is that uh, um, like now? Is is there still that tension within the EU or does the EU seem stronger now? There definitely was a very real fear about what would this mean? We were in the we were in the unknown there, a big, powerful country that leaves with populism on the rise, places like France and Italy, and yet none of that has materialized. The EU has been very strong in terms of having a united front when it comes to negotiations, and that seems set to continue. doesn't mean the EU doesn't have its own internal problems, but in many ways Brexit is one of its minor big issues. It's got problems to do with migration, relationship with the US, with China, These things actually consume much more of the EU's energy on a day-to-day basis. Hmm. All right. Can't let you go, Andrew, without asking you about uh, Boris Johnson announcing yesterday that uh, the UK will allow 5G, Huawei's 5G, uh, into their system, albeit in a very, very limited space, uh, certainly not into the core of the operation, they said. How is this... uh, How is this... uh, uh, What's been the response in the UK on this? What's the feeling? Well, the feeling is that this decision um, had to come eventually, but that it is a fudge and that we are still conceding a lot of ground and prepared to, in a sense, to accept certain vulnerabilities. And the important thing there is what that means actually for our allies. It can influence what the EU now chooses to do, and certainly it hasn't led to a positive response far from it from the US. So, in fact, it's actually much more important in terms of how it resonates internationally. I think domestically the support is still there to actually think there are ways of fudging this, but internationally there'll be some serious repercussions here. Uh, so are, are those in the UK concerned that the other five eyes are, are concerned that the UK has opened the door, even if it's just a wee bit? 
Very much so, because there's real discussion about the idea that you can actually separate the core from the periphery when it comes to that kind of digital infrastructure. And given the proximity between Huawei and the Chinese state, then, of course, you are um, leaving yourself open to vulnerabilities, especially in the future, because this is going to be the kind of data critical infrastructure that is going to dominate our lives for years to come. Why? What's Boris Johnson's reasoning for doing this? Is it a cost issue? Is it, you know, we're already too far involved with this to turn back? What? Because, what, again, uh, the, obviously the political ramifications would be obvious, but why do this? What's he have to gain from there it? There are definitely financial implications for the companies involved, and this is a low-cost um, option to try and keep Chinese technology um, involved. But I think it's also to do with the message that it sends out to China, which the UK has courted quite um, strongly in the past decade or so, making the city of London a bastion of Chinese-centered finance, welcoming Chinese investment in other ways, especially in, say, our nuclear technology industry, civilian nuclear technology, and on that basis, not wanting to offend the Chinese government. Uh, there's a headline here. Uh, I, I believe this is the NBC website. Our special relationship is less special, uh, says one U.S. Uh, senator. Are you concerned about the relationship? Are those in the U.K. concerned about the, the relationship and the strong ally that, that the U.S. and, and uh, the strong allies that the U.S. And, and the U.K. are? There's certainly grounds for concern because the message from the Trump administration is a very strong, very critical message. And of course, Trump's administration also wants to influence other countries who are about to make this choice. The German um, government is very much torn between not wanting to offend China as well and trying to keep in the U.S.'s good book. So, in fact, this is a bad precedent when it comes to the U.S.'s ability to influence the way in which technology will be developed in the future. Is anyone in the UK viewing this like, uh, for example, the US is just trying to keep China out because it wants to promote its own companies, it wants other companies to be involved here? There's been surprisingly little of that, although you could explain it because we don't have, in essence, a domestic rival. We're talking about importing technology anyway, so Mm -hmm. it's not that we have our own domestic champions to, to promote here. So in fact, there's actually been quite a lot. The narrative has changed in the last few years quite markedly to actually thinking more about China in terms of threats and vulnerabilities rather than opening up everything with um, welcoming arms. All right, you uh, last question since you brought it up earlier. Uh, what's the chatter about Harry and Meghan? Is it still a, an issue over there? Oh, it's very much a live issue. And the idea as well that she might have stopped proceedings to become a naturalized as a British citizen is also causing a stir because that shows where her true in a sense, preference and identity lies, of course. Is she this generation's Yoko Ono? Well, if people remember who Yoko Ono is... Um, <laughs> I'm showing my age. Um, if it needs to be explained, that, then I think the analogy still um, works pretty well because she has broken up a band of four that was pretty special, and on that basis, <laughs> they, I don't think they'll ever reform, just like the original Beatles. <laughs> there you go. Dr. Andrew Glencross has been with us, Senior Lecturer, Department of Politics and International Relations, Aston University in Birmingham, author of Why the UK Voted for Brexit, David Cameron's Great Miscalculation. Andrew, Thanks so much for the time and insight as always. Much appreciated.
My pleasure speaking to you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's move on here. Uh, I think several times uh, over the last uh, year or so, we've had either Sam Cooper, Andrew Russell, or Brian Hill on. They have been doing some incredible investigative reporting work. Are we good? They have been doing some uh, in, in incredible investigative reporting uh, over the years in regard to what is happening in British Columbia with uh, casinos and money laundering and all sorts of different avenues and, and tentacles that spawn out of this. Uh, and the latest uh, article that they have penned, Money Laundering in Ontario, Suspicious Cash transaction, uh, Transactions Spike After BC Casino Crackdown. And again, this is a piece uh, written by Sam Cooper, Andrew Russell, and Brian Hill. We're going to bring in Brian Hill now, online writer and researcher, investigator with Global News and on the line now. Brian, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure. Uh, give us a little bit of background here. Again, another uh, piece of great reporting here. Give us uh, some background here. Talk a little bit about uh, the BC Casino issue and some of the problems they've been having with money laundering and how the cracking down on that has sort of uh, transported this problem to other parts of the country. Sure. So, so uh, you know, as you've pointed out and as we've uh, reported in the past few years, uh, BC really had a problem with uh, 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 alleged criminals uh, going into their casinos and 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 do, you know laundering their dirty money. So, uh, according to financial crime experts, money laundering experts, these would this would be like proceeds of crime, basically connected to drug dealings, uh, uh, loan sharking, other sorts of activities connected to the fentanyl trade. Uh, and then they would take that dirty money and bring it into, uh, in some cases, it literally in duffel bags filled with with cash would take it into BC casinos, gamble, uh, you know, uh, lose a bit, cash out, and then walk out of the casinos with clean money. Um, and and uh, at the height of that, uh, according to BC's Attorney General David Eby, uh, there was as much as $20 million a month uh, flowing through BC casinos. Uh, and, and, you know, Global News reporting uh, done by uh, the like of Sam Cooper has shown that, you know, as much as $2 billion uh, had flown through, had gone through BC casinos in, in this way. And what we're hearing now, uh, and, and now what we have some stats to suggest uh, may be true, is that uh, experts who are uh, really into this, uh, into the issue of money laundering and, and how it's all done, believe that as BC cracked down on this kind of activity in 2018, uh, the people perpetrating these kinds of acts were moving to other jurisdictions, potentially Ontario. Uh, so this is drug money from the sale of fentanyl that was pushed through the BC casino system. Is that accurate? Yeah, that's what the experts say, that you've got transnational organized crime groups who are operating on the streets of Vancouver and other areas of this country. Um, they then sell that those drugs and... Uh, and that the the proceeds from the sales of these drugs have to go somewhere, right? This is this is cash, mm-hmm. um, and it needs to be clean. It needs to be made to look legitimate, right? And the way in which uh, uh, transnational organized crime groups do that is through casinos, and, and one of the ways, anyways. Um, and you know, as, as as a lot of reporting has shown, again, Global News has reported on this. Uh, some of that money has then also been once cleaned, gets pushed through into the, the real estate market right. in Vancouver, et cetera. Too. Which explains some of the prices uh, and issues that Vancouver's been having with real estate of late. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, so uh, you said that changes that have been made to the BC system, uh, can you control this? Can you redu- reduce it? Can you get a handle on it? Right. So what, what happened in BC was that, they, as, as we say, there was the, the, this had become a, evidently a serious issue, so much so that BC is soon to launch an inquiry, a public inquiry, into money laundering and, and how that was going on. And, and so as BC was cracking down on this in late 2017, 2018, um, you know, as I say, going from $20 million a month in suspicious cash transactions to as little as $200,000 a month, um, uh, the statistics we've got show that the number of investigations in Ontario spiked. So uh, according to OPP, Ontario Provincial Police Statistics, and these officers are actually embedded within the casinos in Ontario, which is unique in the country, um, the number of suspicious person investigations or suspicious transaction investigations that they had conducted doubled in 2018 from a roughly 950 the year before to more than 2200 investigations the next year right and that coincides with that crackdown in British Columbia are we equipped to investigate this can we get a handle on it so I mean the, the police we spoke with the uh, chief superintendent uh, uh, Bob Price uh, from the OPP who's in responsible for these units that are embedded in Ontario casinos say that they are on top of it they say that uh, that unique model where where officers are actually embedded in the casinos allows them to uh, uh, kind of engage in this almost community policing type effort where they watch these players where they uh, can see their activities where they can uh, really have an eye on that kind of suspicious activity um, and then are able to investigate it. The OPP also says they work with local law enforcement, um, you know, so it's they're responsible, this unit, for what happens in the casino, right? But if the money that's coming into the casino was earned on the streets, you know, selling drugs, extortion, prostitution, um, they then work with local law enforcement to say, hey, we're looking into this guy, uh, what do you know about him or her, for example? And what can you tell us? Are you already investigating them? Um, so the OPP says they are on top of this, but a lot of the experts we've spoke with, including former RCMP officers who were involved in proceeds of crime investigations, as well as money laundering investigations, uh, they say there still needs to be a lot more done, that we need to remain, that, that, that the government, that the police need to remain very vigilant uh, in terms of this, because it is such a huge business. Uh, tip of the iceberg, do you think, or more so? I mean, it's really hard uh, to say, I think. What we, ha- what we do know, what we have seen, according to what's going on in B.C., is that we're talking billions of dollars. Um, you know, just last year, uh, there was a, a, a big bust, you may recall, in, in, uh, uh, in the Vaughan area. Peel Police, uh, yeah. or sorry, York Regional Police arrested the figures connected to the Figliomeni crime family. They got ties to the Calabrian or Italian Mafia. And uh, they were alleged to have laundered upwards of $70 million through Ontario casinos in the exact same manner, according to police, that, that was being done in, in B.C., where you just go in with up to thirty, fifty thousand bucks 50000 in cash, sit down, gamble, get free meals, get free VIP treatments, get uh, movie, you know, you get show concert tickets, limos, etc. Um, you know, according to police investigators, these people would be treated very well at the casinos while they're gambling, and then after losing a bit, they cash out and leave the casino with clean money. 
Um, so, you know, I mean, you know, even if you're a casino operator, you got to know this is going on. You've got to recognize these customers. No. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and I mean, so there's two things there. So the, the op- operators of casinos have obligations. They have to resport, report suspicious transactions. They have to report uh, large cash transactions. Um, in Ontario, uh, the, the operators work closely with the OPP, obviously, who are embedded in the, uh, in the casinos. Um, you know, and in some particular cases, uh, 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 the police may even allow this kind of activity to go on uh, while they continue an investigation, right. Right? so long as it is in the broader public interest, right? They're pursuing an investigation. So, um, y- you know, the, the police certainly say they have an eye on it, and uh, the, the casino operators, the regulator, um, say that they have an obligation and that they meet those obligations in terms of reporting uh, and 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 keeping an eye on these people. Uh, we remember when casinos uh, made their debut in this country uh, a few decades ago. There was lots of debate then about uh, having them, and there, there seemed to be a novelty at the beginning. They were popping up everywhere. Everywhere, everyone wanted a piece of them. Now there's cities turning them down, and and it's it's pretty much. Uh, uh, calm down as far as the demand for this. Is it possible for organized crime to keep organized crime out of casinos? Is it just a breeding ground for this sort of thing? Um, I mean, according to the money laundering experts and the financial crime experts, the casinos do present a unique opportunity for transnational crime um, because it's a cash business. Um, You know, even... uh, 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 the Chief Superintendent Price from the OPP said when he got involved in that line of work, he was amazed at how much of a cash business it is, right? Just stunned by the amount, yeah. the volume of cash that goes through casinos. Um, so when anytime you've got a cash business like that, it's certainly, um, you know, according to the experts, it's, it's, it's a unique opportunity for people who deal in, whose trade deals in cash. Um, and and uh, will that change? Uh I mean, I think the inquiry in B.C., uh, uh, once that gets going, will likely uh, and hopefully provide a lot of answers in terms of what could have been done better, what wasn't done, um, and how, going forward, can law enforcement, government agencies, casino operators, et cetera, do a better job of, of, of maintaining, uh, you know, control over all of this. Has the demand for casinos across the country gone down? And I know this is a little unrelated, but the point that I'm trying to circle around here is there doesn't seem to be the interest in these operations from the general public, the law-abiding public, as there once was. Uh, Is this more an underground business? Uh, I mean, I'm I'm not sure. I, I, I can't answer that directly. What I can say is that there are instances where casinos have expanded. We've seen that, where something that may have been just a slot machine operation right. has expanded into a bigger operation with full-blown tables, et cetera. Um, you know, in B.C., we certainly saw that, where, um, you know, low betting tables, you know, you could have a maximum bet of $25, and then all of a sudden, within a very short period of time, people were being able to bet thousands and thousands of dollars per hand on Baccarat tables, for example. And are there many average citizens that are doing that, or are these either professional gamblers or criminals? Uh, I mean, I think uh, that was one of the uh, kind of remarkable things to come out of the chief superintendent as well. Our interview with him is that he, in addition to being amazed with the uh, number of, the, the volume of cash that moves through the casinos, he was himself 
not a gambler, he said, was amazed at the just number of ordinary people that will come into yeah. the casino with stacks of cash and gamble. He hmm. said he didn't under he doesn't understand it himself personally. He say say not a gambler, but he said uh, every day, yeah. day after day, every day regular Ontarians walk into casinos with stacks of cash, legitimately earned, and gamble it. So uh, are we expecting the same thing out of Ontario that we did in British Columbia? And if it gets harder and harder to go from province to province, what happens to this issue? Yeah, I, I, again, it's a tough question to answer. What I do know is that the people who are experts in this, like I say, the ones who, you know, former RCMP officers that we've spoken to, for example, um, say that as as one jurisdiction cracks down, uh, other jurisdictions have to become and uh, maintain and become even extra vigilant in the sense that, like, transnational organizations will find a way to launder that money. This money has to be laundered. It can't just sit there. Mm-hmm. It, 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 you can't just have boxes of cash piling up in a closet. You have to do something with the dirty money. So um, if you're earning billions of dollars selling illicit fentanyl on the streets and, and in, other, or in, other, in, in other ways, you have to do something with that dirty cash. So what do you do? You clean mm. it. Unbelievable. Uh, Brian Hillsman with his online writer and researcher, investigative reporter with Global News. The article, Money Laundering in Ontario, Suspicious Cash Transactions Spike After BC Casino Crackdown by Sam Cooper, Andrew Russell, and of course, Brian Hill. Brian, fascinating stuff. Thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Good luck with this. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Thank you. It is 12.51. Man, it, it, the, uh, the stories that uh, these three reporters have, uh, have, have dug up in British Columbia over the last couple of years, we've had them all on the air with us, has uh, just been phenomenal. And again, we hear so much about the fentanyl problem in uh, British Columbia and how it is literally paralyzing uh, different parts of the city. Uh, while their real estate uh, just just skyrockets. And though then we realize that fentanyl, and again, from these reporters, have traced all of this, fentanyl coming in from southern China, it arrives in the ports of British Columbia, uh, it gets sold on the street, the money has to be cleaned, it has to be laundered somehow, and gets pushed through either casinos or into the real estate market. Uh, reports from these three over the past have said that it has affected the price of Vancouver real estate by as much as 15% as this dirty money comes in, uh, this dirty drug money comes in and has to be laundered through the BC uh, lottery system, casino system rather, and and through the real estate. And it's amazing the network that just keeps this going and how much Fentanyl has has not only paralyzed the, the, the human factor, the human cost, uh, but also economically with artificial housing prices, uh, with money being laundered uh, through its casinos. And the problem is now in Ontario. I guess always has been, but now spiking due to what has happened in B.C. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.